Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode, our guest is John Tammy, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks and the author of When Politicians Panicked. He says that government-mandated lockdowns were not necessary to stop the COVID-19 pandemic and argues that they have done more harm than good due to their negative economic impact. He talks about the actions taken by federal and state officials, the trillions of dollars appropriated by Congress for relief, government funding for vaccine development, and more. The conversation begins in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. John Tamney, in your new book, When Politicians Panicked, The closing chapter has this sentence. Politicians' reactions to coronavirus amounted to the biggest 21st century crime against humanity, and nothing else came close. Strong words. Why did you reach that conclusion? I reached that conclusion because I wasn't just looking at the United States. It's got to be stressed that when the United States takes a break from reality, basically when we shut down economic activity here, it has global implications. Let's never forget that we are the global economy in many ways. Uh, When you think about a country like El Salvador, so much of the consumptive ability of its citizens is a consequence of work done in the United States. El Salvadoran immigrants in the U.S. had been sending money back consistently to relatives in the country. Suddenly that income had fallen off completely. If you look around the world to countries like India, to the Philippines, some of the poorest countries in the world, so much of the consumption of their citizens is a consequence of work done in the United States. So when we stopped producing, when suddenly a quarter of tens of millions of American jobs disappeared, the remittances from the United States to desperate people around the world plummeted. And so you had no less than the New York Times, a newspaper that, that always printed the truth around what I saw as a lot of alarmism, making the basic point that around the world, 135 million, but more realistically, 285 million people were rushing towards starvation as a consequence of the lockdowns. That leaves aside the hundreds of millions more who were being reintroduced to poverty as a consequence of lockdowns in the developed world that had that reverberated around the world. So to me, it's hard to anything. Nothing else really comes close in terms of what happened to the world's poorest, the most most vulnerable, as a consequence of these lockdowns. From the time your book went to press and today, one thing that's changed is the vaccines. Certainly in the United States, about 50% of the population have at least one and vaccine rollout around the world. Economies are beginning to open. Has any of that tempered your views? No, no, none whatsoever. Um, Let's ask the question, what if there had never been a vaccine? 
Were we just going to continue to hide from the from the virus as though uh, staying indoors, not living our lives, that the virus was going to somehow fall asleep and go somewhere else or just die off on its own? The reality is, and, and to be clear, I wrote an economics book. I didn't write a medical book, but by all accounts, the Spanish flu is still with us. It, the virus still exists. We never came up with a vaccine for it. Uh, neither did we for the, the flus of 1957, 1968. Uh, people have to get on with their lives. And so without the vaccine, the idea that we could continue to take a break from reality and just hide and not produce wasn't realistic. It wasn't realistic in the U.S. It would have been positively inhumane for the rest of the world. Because, again, it's got to be stressed that when we stop producing, it's, it's very harmful to us, but we're the richest country on earth. For the rest of the world, it is truly tragic. What, how would you describe the emotions coursing through your book? Rage. Unquestionably rage. I can't talk about what happened in 2020 without raising my voice. It's very difficult for me. Uh, people view me as a right-wing libertarian. I'd like to think the reason I am is because I've always felt the ideas of freedom and the policies of freedom lifted most people up the most. What happened in 2020 was a scenario whereby very well-to-do people had the means to essentially take a break, uh, do work from home, and it was sort of a, well, isn't everyone else like us? What, what, you can't do your job from Zoom? And so to me, it was the people with the least who had to suffer the nerves of those with the most, the, the, those, the non-essentials who had the temerity to have work that was all destination related suddenly they didn't matter that we the well-to-do were going to say oh no it's just us we've got to make sure that we're safe from the virus you subhumans can continue to deliver us food and things like but do not knock on our doors do not come near us you can deliver us food at a distance and then if, if you work in restaurants and things where, where you'd normally be helping us up up close Sorry about it. You're, you're no longer essential. You'll, you'll just have to figure out how to get by without a job. What would have been an appropriate or ideal approach to the virus in your estimation? It's going to sound trite and ridiculous, but the only appropriate response was nothing. And I based that on the simple truth that who needs to be forced to avoid activity that might result in hospitalization? I remain of the view that the worst arguments made for the lockdowns were the initial ones. They said, well, we have to protect the hospitals from an overflow. Well, wait a second. Who would need to be forced to avoid behavior that might result in hospitalization at a time when hospitals were least staffed, allegedly, to help you? And then there was the argument, well, but the Imperial College said 2.3 million Americans will die unless we take away freedom. Well, what if they predicted 30 million? Ask yourself the question, what amount of force from government would have meant anything at that point? Americans would have locked down in ways and would have locked down in innovative ways that would have made the government decrees seem limp and kind of unimaginative by comparison. No one needs a law to avoid death. And so the idea that we needed to be forced, that we needed to have our jobs taken from us, that we needed to have our right to operate our companies taken from us, the idea that we needed to have our ability to interact with others taken from us was always superfluous. Let's never forget the virus had been spreading for months. It had been in the news for months. It only became a crisis once politicians deemed it a crisis if they did not act. 
What responsibility uh, do does society such as ours have for marginalized citizens or mar- marginalized individuals, those that don't speak English, those that ha- don't have access to technology? Uh, they might not have had the same amount of information that the kinds of people you describe that were better off uh, might have. It's a great question, and the first way I would answer it is that let's never forget that back in the in the 19th century, uh, mid-century, gold rush period, 300,000 people from around the world with much more limited access to information, much more slow information flow, somehow found their way to California in search of, in search of, of something better, in search of gold. And so the idea that information flow was going to be limited, yeah, that was going to be true, but uh, certainly not like it had been in the past. And then I would add that the people who are low information and then also the people who deny the information. Because that's both. There will be lots of people, and we know this. There are lots of the deniers out there who had all sorts of access to information who said, wait a second, this is improper what's happening. Those are your most important people, easily, when a virus is spreading. Because we all know people. I, I'm from the libertarian world. I know people who haven't been in a restaurant since last year. These were people who thought the idea of lockdowns were abhorrent, but they just they thought that they didn't want to take a risk, and so they, 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 they stayed away. The people who don't stay away are your, are your control group. The people who reject expert opinion, expert opinion made during uh, an uncertain time, a time of limited knowledge, provide information, the most important information. What happens when you decide to continue to live your life, when you decide to continue to go to bars, restaurants, date, all those things? We learn from them what happens. If you don't have the people define conventional wisdom, you're kind of blinded to how the virus spreads. And to be clear, we didn't know. Let's remember the experts who are telling us about how the virus spread they were the ones telling us back in the 1980s that you could get AIDS just by being around someone else who had it. That AIDS could be spread easily within family households. It wasn't true. That's what Anthony Fauci wrote. It doesn't indict him that it wasn't true. But what indicts people is when we say, oh, this is what's real, this is, this is the known, and you must abide it. No, 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 you want the people, the low information types who are going to defy conventional wisdom because they produce real information. What is true and what's not? How does a virus spread? And how is that information, the control groups as it were, gathered and disseminated to the larger public? Do you need organizations like the CDC and the NIH to be able to do that? Well, I'll answer your question. Let's imagine if the CDC didn't exist. Does anyone think without it that there wouldn't have been voluminous information about the meaning of the virus, why it was spreading, how it was most likely to spread? Does anyone think that without these Anthony Fauci and, and, and government entities meant to study immunology that there wouldn't be that in the private sector? People, we as, as, as a very evolved society, we, we want to live. We want to understand what threatens us. The idea that there wouldn't have been private sector entities doing this in far more innovative fashion, maybe less alarmist fashion, or maybe more alarmist, maybe they would have, maybe they would have known even in better in real time the threat of the virus, and they would have told us to take bigger precautions than Fauci was. Let's never forget that for a time, Anthony Fauci said this isn't a big worry. Let's never forget that Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, was, was riding on the subways to encourage people to get back out. 
Let's never forget that he was saying, go see movies. Let's never forget that the red states in the United States, the ones that locked down last, documented fact, they were the ones populated by people who started making changes first, stopped going out to restaurants as much, stopped going out to bars, started buying up uh, hand sanitizer and masks. We saw this in Germany, too, when Angela Merkel was still downplaying the virus masks and hand sanitizer were selling out in, in Germany. And so the point is, information does get around. The idea that we're, we're reliant on, on experts in government or politicians, what, what would be their skill in this area? The, the idea that we need them to tell us to do something when we were already adjusting on our own just defies, I think, common sense, but also what we witnessed. Doesn't misinformation also travel globally? Without question. But I think we would agree that it travels globally, not just from free people, but also from government. The idea that misinformation is going to travel around is not an excuse to hand politicians more power. I don't see why I reject the notion. I hear from people on the right, well, wasn't Trump visionary for taking away uh, the right of, of travel between the U.S. and China in late January? And my response is, oh, unquestionably no. Why is it that every time politicians and experts close to politicians discover something that they deem terrifying, that suddenly this must aggrandize government, that it must give, that, that government must be the winner in the power game just because they've deemed something a, a threat to us? I, I don't see why that, that, that always has to be. So uh, just to clarify how um uh, how much you underscore this. Were you against any di dictates or directions from government, social distancing, mask wearing, or specifically the lockdowns? You know, it's a great question. If there's one thing that I could rewrite in the book, the more I think about it, the more I discuss it. I say in the book that really what should have happened um, from the political class was something along the lines of be careful, there's a virus spreading. I would even retract that now, and, and the, there's a reason I would retract it. For one, we know that Americans were already taking major precautions as is, and we know this around the world, that the people, the marketplace that is the people, that they started taking major precautions on their own. The danger of governments making big pronouncements like this, even to be careful, is that it, it does, it carries some weight. Okay, the CDC says this is a danger, and I think that's dangerous because they don't pay for being wrong. Anthony Fauci, I don't doubt that he's a bright guy, but if you look at the track record, at least on AIDS, and if you look at not just in the U.S., he, the, the National Health Service in Great Britain put up signs in the 1980s saying that AIDS was going to affect, infect a, a fifth of the population in Great Britain. This was at a time when there was no known cure for it. And so the idea that they had the power to scare people like that um, I think is dangerous. Be, and you, so you look about at how information evolves. I would prefer that if people are going to make pronouncements that it takes place privately. Um, I would much more trust Disney to say, you know, there's a virus spreading. We're going to shut down our parks for a while because we're unsure about, what the, about how uh, lethal this virus is. I would prefer that a business with a profit with skin in the game to someone like Anthony Fauci. If he's wrong, you can't really fire him. He's served six presidents. If he had his track record working for Disney, 
can we agree that he probably wouldn't be there anymore? In the private sector, you pay for your mistakes. You don't as much. In the, in the government sector, usually mistakes result in more funding for what you're doing, not less. If a, um, the head of an emergency room in New York City at the height of pandemic were sitting here watching all the deaths and the bodies piling up um, in the refrigerated trucks outside of their hospital, what would they say to you about your argument? They would say that you, you didn't see what I saw. They would say we witnessed up close the horrors of the coronavirus, and I would say precisely. That information got out very quickly, and it got out very quickly, and the result was that Americans on their own, through no force, were locking down sooner than politicians were telling them to. And that's precisely the point. Information was already out there that at least in some parts of the U.S., it had a quick impact. Now, I would argue, some would argue that emergency rooms are always very, very crowded. But nonetheless, this is happening. If emergency rooms are filling up, if the body bags are filling up, and this is all in the news, we all agree that, we all saw that. What's the point of force? Who needs force at this point? Who needs to be basically threatened? If you open up your business, we will cut off electricity to you. If you work... You're, in, you're somehow violating some sort of rule. You're no longer essential. Who needs to be forced to avoid getting sick when they're witnessing this? Do you? I mean, I don't, I don't know anyone who, if they're seeing the bodies piling up, wouldn't take precautions at that point. Certainly in my house, I, again, was always a skeptic. But you better believe, long before mask decrees, I was wearing masks out. And I was because my wife told me I had to. Worth magazine, in writing about your new book, asks the question, is Tammany hard-hearted? Is he a social Darwinist? Uh, no, I love people. And uh, I am this, if, if you ever questioned how compassionate I am, uh, this book would probably make you rethink uh, and, and recognize that I'm, doesn't make me great, but I'm very compassionate. Uh, what this came down to, and it, 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 it goes throughout the book is I hate to see people lose their livelihood. I hate to see businesses, people who've worked their lives to create something, suddenly lose it. I hate to see people around the world who would give anything to have the problems that we had in the U.S. when the virus was spreading suddenly see their kids forced back into a path in life that means they'll be cleaning gutters in the way their parents are. Let's never forget that we complain in the U.S. all the time about, well, we're going to bring jobs back. We're going to bring back the past. The rest of the world, they give anything for what we have, whereby jobs aren't generational. Most people don't do what their parents did or their grandparents did. They get to do better and better work all the time. Uh, when we shut down like this in the U.S., it slows down the global economy in a really cruel way. And as I document in the book, and you know, some of this is anecdotal, but I think it tells a bigger story. What was happening in countries like Pakistan is that suddenly gutter cleaners whose kids were getting a shot at education, suddenly they lacked the means to do that. Suddenly they were back to being on the path that their father was, who literally every night had to eat while smelling his hands that he couldn't get the, the, the wretch off of his hands from a day cleaning gutters that were full of all sorts of things that you can imagine. And so this is all about compassion. Look, I, I'm for freedom, but if you, to look at what happened around the world, 
you'd have to really lack compassion to say that this was a helpful thing for, the, for those with the least around the world. To me, it was disastrous. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, let's go back. Let's start with the public health officials, and the experts are the ones that you highlight on the cover of your book. This quote from Anthony Fauci in March 15th, 2020, is one you specifically cite. Let's watch and uh, get your reaction. The golden rule that I say is that when you think you're doing too much, you're probably doing enough or not enough. Okay. All right. That's the thing you've got to do. You don't want to be complacent. You always want to be ahead of the curve. But it depends on how far ahead of the curve you want to be. Don't even for a second think that I'm saying we shouldn't. I like to be criticized when I say, oh, you're being too overreactive. That's good for me. Right. Would you prefer a 14-day just sort of national shutdown to slow this down? You know, I would prefer as much as we possibly could. I think we should really be overly aggressive and get criticized for overreacting. March, uh, mid-March of 2020, why did you highlight that clip from Anthony Fauci? I did because it was horrifying. Uh, The words of someone in Fauci who was never going to miss a meal, never going to miss a paycheck. How easy for him to say, yes, let's overreact. Those tens of millions of Americans who are going to lose their jobs, the millions of American business owners who are going to see either lose their business or, or see it severely impaired. How easy for Fauci to overreact in that way? He's got a constant flow of dollars to him. Nothing was going to change materially about his life. And so I think that's the danger always of government reaction. Government, because it's, it, it arrogates to itself a percentage of the wealth created annually by the American people, it has the ability to say things that a private business could never say. A private business that could be that overreactive and cause so much harm, and let's not deny that the lockdowns caused endless harm in the U.S. around the world, could never get away with that. And and so I find the statement offensive, and I think it speaks to the challenge of government as the leader in response to a virus spreading. Is it any surprise that we always have crises when we have the fulfillers, the self-fulfillers of those crises like Anthony Fauci in government? In a column that you wrote for Real Clear Markets, one of your home bases, you anticipated some of your readers' reactions to your sentiments. You wrote, some readers will say, good. They'll claim that Fauci's insulation from the pressures of the market enable him to say what can't or wouldn't be said if unemployment were the consequence of incorrect utterances or words expressed in articulate fashion. Furthermore, they might say that pressure in the free market cuts both ways, particularly in relation to the coronavirus. If Fauci had been in the employee of McDonald's, AMC, or Six flags when the virus became a big story, he might have felt the pressure to downplay it in consideration of how overreaction could have possibly shrunk customer count for all three corporations. You anticipated them uh, arguing this. What's your response? Yeah, I kind of set myself up to give my (laughs) response, but my response is that's just a misunderstanding of how businesses work. Uh, In the stock market, the stock market never prices in the present. It always prices the future. What will the future look like for a company? And that speaks to why if Fauci were the the employee of Disney, AMC, Six Flags, he could never be careless 
about a spreading virus. And he couldn't because if he were wrong, if he downplayed the virus in hopes that people showed up to the parks anyway, only for it to be, be a, a, something that, in, that induced a lot of sickness or in rare cases death, he would be out of a job so quickly and he would be disgraced so quickly that we would never have to suffer his utterances again. Uh, you can't make these kinds of mistakes in the private sector. You quite simply can't because if Disney had downplayed a virus that proved to be very lethal, Disney would probably not have customers ever again. Or if it had customers, it would have much fewer because it would have lost the trust uh, of its customer base. And so you need, it's the beauty of the marketplace is what protects us uh, beca precisely because you have investors who need you to be correct. You can't be overly alarmist, but you also can't underplay something that's threatening because if you underplay it, you'll pay for it in the marketplace. Chris, it wasn't just uh, Anthony Fauci, Dr. Redfield, Francis Collins of the NIH, and their colleagues at the major uh, hospitals, Mayo Clinic and the like, who were sounding the alarm, but also people in public health globally. So I guess I would ask the question, what's a politician to do? Who do they turn to if not these, uh, these medical experts in the, in the face of a pandemic? Now, look, it's a great question. Uh, my first thing that I would say is that what would a politician, with expert advice or without it, what would a politician know about a virus spreading? They are good at certain things. They, are, they probably aren't good at this. I, I quote in the book Ron Klain, who at the time was Joe Biden's chief of staff. Now he's his chief of staff in the, in the White House. But Ron Klain made the point that the Obama administration's reaction to um, what was the, one of the viruses that came before this, H1N1, was disastrous, that if it had proven to be a, a dangerous or a lethal virus that the Obama administration would have been sitting on the deaths of 50 to 60 million uh, people. Well, my response to that the same way is, well, what would Barack Obama, nothing against him, know about how to handle a virus? The answer is just to not rely on politicians in the first place. What's their expertise in this? So they, they go to other experts. Okay, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not anti-expert. What I'm against is centrally planned responses based on expert opinion. Let's never forget that the Soviet Union was full of experts. Cuba is full of experts. So is North Korea, probably brilliant people. But they'll never know more than the marketplace. In the book, I make the point that Anthony Fauci is a big baseball fan. Imagine him at a Nationals game in a full park, 40,000 plus people. Let's assume for a second he's the smartest individual in that park. Okay, fine. That part collectively, though, the, the 40,000 would have exponentially more knowledge than Anthony Fauci does. And that's what, what I'm describing here is the marketplace at work. Why do markets work? Why does freedom work so well? Because freedom is the broad information controlled or, or collectivized by everyone. When we hand over decision-making power to the very few, is it any surprise that we get crises? Politicians say, well, unless we act, unless we do something, there will be a crisis. They are talking a self-fulfilling prophecy because once you hand over decision-making power to the very few, you guaranteed every single time you'll get a crisis. We've seen it around the world. We saw it in the 20th century. We saw it in 2020. Does this carry through all levels of government in your thinking? So if you're closer to the people, i.e. officials in Montgomery County, Maryland, where you live, are monitoring the situation and put in local 
uh, ordinances in place. Is that okay, or, or do you follow all the way down the line for government should not be involved at any level? It's a great question. Um, I think that the closer the government is, uh, you're choosing that. You're choosing that based on where you live to some degree. Government should have more of a role, almost by definition, the more local they are. I still would be very distru- distrusting of it, but that's where you want the reaction to take place. And so some will say, well, so wait a second, maybe these lockdowns weren't so bad. Uh, that they were, it was a state's rights thing, you know. Florida and Georgia reacted relatively very little. California and New York re- reacted a lot. And I reject that because it presumes that states' rights were fully at work in 2020, when in fact we know they're not. Again, let's ask ourselves the question, what if the federal government had properly stayed out of this altogether? Again, what does Donald Trump know about viruses? Why was the federal government involved? Well, so assuming assuming they stay out of it, uh, and in staying out of it, well, guess what? There will not be a $2.9 trillion spending package to basically prop up the unemployed who had lost their jobs because of these needless lockdowns. The the PPP that was propping up businesses that were needlessly impaired by these lockdowns. What if that doesn't exist? How long could the lockdowns have occurred? Basically, the answer to that is California would have made, would have had to react easily within a few weeks, would have had to end it. There's no way that people would have sat back and watched their livelihoods and businesses taken from them unless there's a federal response subsidizing the lockdowns. And so we didn't have states' rights. Basically, the federal government subsidized varying degrees of alarmism or reaction by the states that never could have happened without it. Now, people say, oh, well, what would have happened? Lots of people would have died. No, why would people have died? Why is it that government needs to take away our freedom so that we can live? Assuming the virus had proven incredibly lethal, the American people would have reacted far more uh, innovatively and quickly than, than government could have told them to do. So there's this, this idea that without the reaction, even locally, that we would have been, our health would have been impaired. I, I just, I reject the notion outright. We're smart people. We, we don't need to be forced to protect our health. You have a few chapters in the book about China. Would you talk about China's role in this, uh, both in uh, their openness to the rest of the world coming to investigate and how they approached it? Uh, China, near as I can tell, uh, the virus had been spreading for months and nothing was done. As George Gilder, he wrote the foreword for the book, he said basically they dithered for months and he would view that and I would view that as a good thing because it'll, uh, the virus, they, the experts claim it spreads quicker than the flu. The virus was spreading fairly quickly and so George would say that there was, there was a lot of immunity being built up during that time. Uh, the, the main thing I would say about China, and it's the first chapter in the book, and then there's, there's some later stuff that I'd love to discuss, is that we knew from China that the virus was many things, none of them terribly lethal. And how we know this is that if you look at the most valuable companies in the world, most of them are U.S.-based. Uh, Apple is the most valuable company in the world. It sells a fifth of its iPhones in China. Uh, McDonald's, its second largest market is China. Nike's second largest market is China. GM sells more cars in China than it does in North America. Uh, The list goes on and on. It's the second largest box office for Hollywood. If the virus had been enormously sickening or uh, lethal, you would have seen U.S. shares collapsing in the fall of 2019. You'd have seen them collapsing much more 
in the early parts of 2020. And we know this because if suddenly people were dying off indiscriminately or getting sick in the largest market for the U.S., not the U.S., stock markets don't wait for that result. They price it ahead of time. Yet U.S. shares were hitting an all-time highs as the virus was spreading rampantly in China. And so that's a fairly interesting market signal that politicians never bother to look at. And I've talked to people inside the Trump administration who acknowledge this truth. They did not look at this. That, again, the virus was out there, yet it wasn't having a major health impact in the country in which it began. Uh, I uh, looked up the response, Chinese response to the coronavirus and, you know, the Lancet, the British Journal, the Medical Mm. Journal. Let me just read you this one paragraph from October 2020 describing the Chinese response. Uh, It's a little bit long, but bear with me. Wuhan was placed under a strict lockdown that lasted 76 days. Public transport was suspended. Soon afterwards, similar measures were implemented in every city in Hubei province. Across the country, 14,000 health checkpoints were established at public transport hubs. School reopenings after winter vacation were delayed. Population movements were severely curtailed. Dozens of cities implemented family outdoor restrictions, which typically meant only one member of each household was permitted to leave the home every couple of days to collect necessary supplies. Within weeks, China had managed to test 9 million people for SARS-CoV-2 in Wuhan. It set up an effective national system of contact tracing. What's the reaction to that? My reaction is, yeah, they, they subsequently locked down fairly substantially, as is well known. <clears throat> I believe it began in January. But by all accounts, the virus had been spreading long before that. If it had been a major killer or a major uh, cause of sickness, we would have known it long before the politicians reacted. And so uh, do politicians make mistakes? Oh, yes, they do. Uh, do they make extra bigger mistakes in countries where there's not a democracy or some kind of way to remove leaders? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, did it work very well? I don't know. France locked down substantially, the, the, most, the strictest lockdowns in all of Europe. I didn't see any majorly good result from that. Uh, California locked down, New York locked down far more than did Georgia and, and Florida. Did, was, was there some really positive health response? Uh, to say that politicians are going to react and take away freedom, that's a given. As I write in the book, there's that old Randolph Bourne quote that war is the health of the state. Well, so I had a corollary to it in the book that crises are the state's oxygen. It's no surprise that politicians around the world reacted and overreacted in really uh, overdoing it ways. No surprise there. Did it work? I don't think there's any evidence supporting whether it worked. But even if there had been, as I make plain in the book, even if you could show me or if people could show me what they can't, that there was some really positive result from taking away freedom, I would still say that it's the wrong path. President Trump was one of the politicians you say specifically panicked. In what ways? Uh, President Trump lost his nerve. There's just no getting around it. Here is a person who in late February said the virus was no big deal. Well, so did Anna Wintour, the editor of Vogue. These are two people who probably don't agree on anything. There's probably enmity between them. De Blasio thought it was somewhat of a, the mayor of New York thought it was somewhat something overdue. Angela Merkel in Germany didn't take it very seriously. 
Trump didn't stick to that. Instead, the experts got to him, and suddenly he was calling for national lockdowns. Suddenly, when states like Georgia were saying, we're going to open back up, we can't continue to do this to our people and their businesses, Trump was saying, oh, no, no, my power is absolute. Well, no, it wasn't. In fact, his power, thank goodness, was not absolute. But did he panic unquestionably? And I think that's why he's no longer president. Imagine if Trump acts like Trump. Imagine if he remains the same old obstreperous Donald Trump, and I talk about this in chapter 17 of the book, and basically gives a speech saying that any governor so foolish as to choose economic desperation as a virus mitigation strategy is going to have me to deal with. I'm going to visit those states daily and campaign against what what makes no sense right up until the election. Well, he's still president today. And he's president, A, because the lockdowns would have ended much sooner, because without a presidential signature on a $2.9 trillion spending bill, there would have been no spending bill to subsidize these lockdowns that achieved much less than nothing. And so Trump, if he acts like him, if he does not panic, is still president. But I think a lot of people, not just in the U.S., but around the world, are saved a lot of heartache. If Trump doesn't give in to the hysteria... For one, he gives Republican governors in the U.S., and there were 26 at the time, cover to maybe not do something that made no sense. He probably gives a few Democratic governors cover, too. Well, let's never forget that the rest of the world keys so much on what the Americans do. Uh, We are the model. People have been risking their lives for centuries to get to here, to get a taste of freedom. Not for security, freedom. If the the most freedom-loving nation on Earth says, wait, you want to take away freedom and destroy jobs and businesses and destroy lives as a virus mitigation? You other countries can do that. We will not do that. If the U.S. doesn't panic, I think we save a lot of countries around the world from similar panic. Did you support the multi-billion dollar investment in vaccine development? No, and I'm not anti-vaccine. I've had all the vaccines. I'm not against that at all. But I don't think that the private-public partnerships that people on the right don't support in normal times make sense during crises times, crises largely manufactured by government. government. I make a point in the book of arguing consistently that this should not be a statistical argument. And I mostly make, I just make an economic argument in the book. You shouldn't take away freedom. But I, I, I... I point out this, some of the things that other people have said on a rare occasion that Holman Jenkins at the Wall Street Journal had pointed out that 88% of those infected with the virus either didn't know they had it or it was too mild for them to do anything about it, to go to the doctor about it. Uh, the other statistics, you know, the CDC released something about how well north of 90% of those who died with the virus had some other comorbidity. And so I used to ask the question, what if there had been no federal funding of private pharmaceutical searches for the vaccine? Would anyone have cared that much? Um, how many of those private uh, pharmaceutical companies would have pursued a vaccine for a virus that, at least statistically, is fairly mild for the vast majority? I'm guessing not. And so my question is, what would these companies have been doing had they not had billions directed at them by taxpayer dollars? Maybe they would have spent more time looking for a cure to pancreatic cancer. Maybe they would have focused more of their limited energies on something else. Um, And so, again, 
if the marketplace creates a vaccine, I'm for it. I just would prefer it to not be a private-public partnership. We have about 20 minutes left in our conversation. I want to uh, show some video from two of the governors you've talked about, 1D, 1R, um, two of our largest states. Let's start with Andrew Cuomo because he's one of the people pictured on the cover of your book. Uh, (laughs) This is from March 20th of 2020 in one of his daily briefings. Two basic rules. Uh, Only essential businesses will be functioning People can work at home, God bless you, but only essential businesses can have workers commuting uh, to the job or on the job. Second rule, remain indoors to the greatest extent uh, for non-vulnerable populations. These are the rules. No non-essential gatherings. Uh, Any concentration of individuals is because you're an essential work essential business and an essential workforce there are people and places in new york city where it looks like uh, life as usual no this is not life as usual and uh, accept it and uh, realize it and deal with it let's move on and play ron DeSantis as well to contrast and talk mm-hmm. about the two different governors <laughs> approaches I think there are certain parts of the state where you have more sporadic cases and, and to issue to order someone not to be able to earn a paycheck when them going to work is not going to have any effect on what we're doing with the virus. Um, you know, that is something that I think is inappropriate. When you do some of these things, people respond different ways. And you've got to think about what the second order effect is. Clearly, when New York did shelter in place, that caused thousands and thousands of people to flee. And so that's going to make it more difficult, I think, nationwide for us to be able to, uh, to get a grip on this stuff. Um, but, you know, you look at California, they were ordered not to go to work. And so you look, they're out on, you know, partying, they're at beaches and stuff. You probably are less dangerous just driving your car going to the office than being with crowds of hundreds of people. So you just got to think it through. But I've supported the, the local things, and it's a, it's, a, it's a more surgical approach, but it also is um, mitigating any damage uh, that would be done for, for blunt instruments being applied in places um, throughout the state where it wouldn't be appropriate. And you point out in the book that Andrew Cuomo was awarded an Emmy for his daily briefings. Governor DeSantis faced a lot of criticism for his approach. Uh, With a year's hindsight, how do these two look to you? Uh, Cuomo obviously has not aged well on this. Uh, What he decreed hasn't aged well at all. And it didn't make sense at the time. The idea that businesses think so little of their employees that they would look to imperil them in some way by bringing them back to work. Wait, what? That, that, that there's, employees are the biggest driver of corporate health, of, of their profits, of, of, their, of their success. The idea that, that CEOs and office heads would just be so indifferent and say, oh, come in and, and risk, risk your health. You need to be forced to stay home just defies basic common sense. Uh, where, where do you go with this? The idea that people can't meet in public places, that suddenly the very human beings who've driven all progress are a lethal menace to one another, all based on the decree of a governor. Uh, Again, I I think it's all very dangerous. Uh, Businesses, non-essential businesses must remain closed. You must stay home. Well, 
Wait, the very entity that gave us the DMV and the passport office and, and uh, the post office is going to suddenly decide what businesses can stay open and what's essential and what's not essential? It, it's horrifying. It, it's terrifying. And it presumes that, to me, every business ever created is, in a sense, a speculation on a different future. It's, it's, it's an argument that what's out there isn't meeting the needs of the people. So when a business succeeds, it's a bit of a miracle. And suddenly we are stamping out those miracles. We're saying that, no, 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 you don't count right now. You can't do this. Well, why would Andrew Cuomo make that decision? Why wouldn't business owners who figured out a way to meet the needs of their customers in the first place get the chance to innovate for the needs of different customers. Again, I make very clear in the book that it's not as though the customer base of the U.S. hadn't changed. It's not as though Americans weren't scared. Oh, lots of Americans were scared, clearly. People were going out and doing less. So right when we needed to learn from businesses the most, right when businesses needed the chance to innovate the most, maybe Disney shuts down altogether, maybe the corner store doesn't, doesn't have access to capital markets, you needed a combination of different approaches so that we could learn from, from businesses how to reopen. Uh, what's the best way to meet the needs of a customer base that is fearful right now? Instead, we just blinded the American people. We blinded business to how to operate based on these decrees. And so Cuomo comes off as not just wrong-headed and arrogant, uh, but someone who, uh, kind of cruel, I, I think, to tell people that you can't go do your work anymore. If someone took away my job, I don't know what I'd do. Let's move to Congress's reaction. Here's our Senator Schumer and McConnell, the two leaders in the Senate, on the passage of the $2 trillion COVID Relief CARES Act, March 25th, 2020. You know, the bottom line is very simple. When you have a crisis like this, a scourge that shakes us to our bones, private industry can't get you out of the problem. Only government can. It's a $2 trillion bill. And so the bottom line is it's very expensive, but it would have been more expensive to do nothing or do very little because the crisis is so all-enveloping, so much of America. I think if I were writing your headline, I'd say the Senate has pivoted from one of the most contentious partisan periods in the nation's history to passing this rescue package 100 nothing, all in one quarter of this year from arguably the most partisan divisive thing you could possibly do to coming together entirely, 100 of us, to meet this challenge. John Tamney, the Congress has passed and the presidents, the presidents, plural, have signed into law a $5.9 trillion of spending over the last 15 months in response to COVID. What's your reaction? Staggering. Uh, the very political class that created the crisis gets to extract trillions from the private economy to throw at its mistakes. Sh Chuck Schumer says that uh, private industry can't get us out of this. Well, where does he think the means, where does he think those trillions came from? Can Peru raise $6 trillion? Can Zimbabwe? Can Haiti? No, and why can't they? Because there's very little in the way of a productive private sector in those countries to basically borrow against. So without the private industry that Schumer says is unequal to this, 
there would be no federal spending plan in the first place. So basically what we're doing, the private industry creates all sorts of wealth, and the political class that creates a crisis gets to basically impose even more central planning. We blew it in the first place. We're going to throw trillions more. We're going to let Chuck Schumer and, and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump and Joe Biden, we're going to let them centrally plan our way out of it by getting having the right to spend trillions of dollars. The very notion is just obnoxious. Uh, I have a supercomputer in my pocket that has more computing power. It's just we, I uh, insult it by calling it a phone. It has more power than the spaceship that took, the, took, took us to the moon back in the late 1960s. Somehow private industry can create all sorts of things for us, all sorts of amazing, life-enhancing, and extending innovations, yet it's incapable to do this? And Chuck Schumer, what's his basis for that? What, what is it he thinks he can do? The reality is if there's no federal response, the businesses would still exist. Maybe that $6 trillion that they want to spend would still be in the private sector, being directed by investors and lenders to those businesses that need it to survive. Why, does, why, why do we have to, every time there's a crisis, why does government have to grow? What, what, what are they so good at in handling crises? No one's ever explained it, and they haven't because they can't. The mainstream media, in the book you write that the blame the mainstream media argument for how, how society reacted isn't a very compelling one. Why not? It's not. Uh, let's never forget that we've got more access to media than we ever have. Imagine if this virus had begun spreading in the year 2000 or 1980. Uh, the limited information that we would have had access to back then would, would, would have been ama amazing relative to today. We, there were basically four major newspapers back then, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, LA Times, three networks. Um, that was when we lacked, that, that was when the media had a lot more power, simply because there, were, there was no way to get dissenting information. Whereas nowadays, there are endless ways for wise people out there, and sometimes unwise, let's be clear, but that's always been the case. There's always been misinformation as, as old as information is. At least now we have access people were getting information that, that the, the New York Times was very good at, pr at, at printing information, but they would do it within articles that were very alarmist sounding. Then you'd read into them and they would report what, what uh, very interesting details about the virus spreading. But she didn't get it from the headlines. And so I, I just, the idea that we're going to blame the media for, I, I, I think that's, that's offensive. Uh, if, if you went to my Twitter feed, uh, rest assured that you would have, during that time, you would have gotten lots of articles and posts that would maybe in some ways support my viewpoint, which is why I make clear in the book that I get the vast majority of my information from the book from the New York Times. And I did that by design. I wanted to check on what I believed. I wanted to, to take a more alarmist source in writing the book so that I had a, so that I could answer the arguments, but also question my own. And so, and so that's what I did. But to pretend that people didn't have access to, all, to alternative information during this, it, to me, isn't serious. Let's spend our last seven, eight minutes together to talk about what's next. So uh, what, how do you think the Americans' relationship with the federal government has changed as a result of the last 15 months? I'd like to think that Americans are more skeptical. Uh, time will tell. I'd like to think that they're far more skeptical, that they saw, and, and then maybe politicians will feel the same way, that they realized how quickly they did an enormous amounts of damage. 
and that there'll be reluctance to do such big things in the future. I'd la- uh, but again, time will tell on that. Uh, how do you think technology, what, what, the use of it that we uh, will change society? You have written about the fact that this pandemic couldn't have, uh, the lockdowns couldn't have happened 10, 15 years ago because technology has changed so much. We use it now ubiquitously. How do you think that will impact society? Yeah, it's, it's going it's to be fascinating. It's, 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 to me, it's an exciting thing. But yeah, sure, 20 years ago, there, there's no way the lockdowns wouldn't have occurred. No virtue signaling on Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg was in high school 20 years ago. Uh, there wouldn't have been uh, the subhumans who delivered our food. Well, there was no uh, Postmate and Grubhub and all that to have food delivered. Uh, gosh, you look at uh, Webvan was the grocery delivery company. It went bankrupt by 2001 and, and it, when it was serving very little of the country. And so there was just no way to lock people in their homes 20 years ago. Uh, technology continues to evolve, and, and that's, a, to me, a good thing. But let's to be clear, it cuts both ways. This time around, 70% of Americans, was the statistic thrown around, were able to continue to do their jobs from home because of these advances in technology. Again, a beautiful thing. 20, 30 years from now, I imagine that number will be even greater. That's happy, but that speaks to my argument that we must be more vigilant, that this argument's ultimately got to be about freedom. We just can't let people take away our freedom. You worry in the final chapter that the stage is set for future lockdowns when future viruses strike. Uh, what's the path to discussion about, uh, about how the world responded to the coronavirus? It, yes, to me, that's the essential thing. Um, there will be future viruses. Uh, we know that. They're, they've come before, they will come again. The fear I have and the reason I make an economic and freedom argument is, is for exactly that reason. Unless we make it about the government sh- shouldn't take away our right to live our lives and operate our businesses, there will be another one that comes along. Uh, easily, very smart experts will basically scare easily gold politicians say you know this time is different we, we we've got to take away freedom this time and so it's got to be about no 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 you just don't do that you don't take away uh, free people not only produce the economic growth that is the biggest enemy death and disease have ever known but free people produce information and so you don't take it away you d- definitely don't take it away during periods when a virus is spreading that's when you need free people the most but where do you see those debates happening so that there can be a consensus that develops I hope there will never be a consensus because we saw what happened there. Uh, Mitch McConnell's arguing about a consensus that was so great. Oh, we one hundred to nothing. We voted for a three trillion dollar extraction from the private economy. I don't want a consensus. You I want, want a vigorous I, debate. I want vigorous debate, but I, I want to have it. I hope that we're more educated this time around. I wrote when politicians panicked because. I want the freedom argument to have a voice in this. History is going to be written on this. I don't want this to be another 1930s where they say that capitalism caused the 1930s. And so uh, the idea that history books in the future could say that a virus caused a global economic collapse is horrifying to me. And so it's essential that we point out the truth that the virus has been spreading for months and people were thriving. It was when politicians panicked that a global economic contraction occurred. We were handling the virus just fine. And how do you see the U.S. economy responding to the influx of government money into, into it? As a rule, it's a wet blanket. Um, what's your guess? What, what would anyone's guess be? Would we rather Jeff Bezos, Peter Thiel, Fred Smith of FedEx uh, allocating the economy's resources or Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, and, and Mitch McConnell? The question answers itself. 
government has no resources. It can only spend what it's extracted from the private sector first. To pretend that government spending actually increases economic growth is a monument to double counting that would, that would shock the most crooked of accountants in the world. And it just shows you the bankrupt nature of GDP. GDP increases the more that government spends. Well, but government only has wealth to spend insofar as the private sector's already created. It's just double counting. So no, there won't be more economic growth. The unseen here is endless. Just how much better off the economy would be had there not been a federal spending plan in the first place. If you could go toe-to-toe with anyone anywhere in society to have a debate over this right now, who would be the other person at the podium? to debate you. Oh gosh, I'd love I'd love to I think I would love most to go up against Gavin Newsom or uh, Andrew Cuomo. Why? Because they were the most certain of the idea that they needed to take away freedom and take away the right of people to work in order to fight a virus. And I wouldn't use any statistics. I wouldn't need it. As we close, uh, the book is called When Politicians Panicked. Where else can people find your work? Um, I'm editor at Real Clear Markets. Which and is so what? It's a, it's a website that brings together vari- varieties of opinion. Uh, throughout this, the, the spreading virus, I showed people who supported the lockdowns, people like me who were against it. And so that's where I combine uh, all sorts of ideologies on all sorts of economic and market matters on a daily basis. I'm a vice president at FreedomWorks. So that's where I spend most of my days. And uh, you can find all my, works at free- my work at freedomworks.org. I give speeches about this. Luckily, I get to come on shows like Q&A to discuss this, but I'm very active. I'm very lucky to do what I do. And, and one of the reasons among many that I wrote the book is that I never lost my livelihood during this. And I can't imagine what, how miserable I would have been had someone taken it from me. And so to think all the people had taken from them what animated them, it horrifies me. There are so many layers to this tragedy but maybe the biggest one, in a way, is that people were no longer free to do what they loved to do. And, and, and that, you know, I, I had to write the book as a response to it. John Tamney, thank you for spending an hour. The book, again, When Politicians Panicked. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 